Hello, everybody. Welcome to Alien Talk Podcast. This is where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs, and where we always push the limits of our understanding. We are your dedicated hosts, Joe Landry and Roy Olford, here again to bring you a fascinating show out across the World Wide Web as we continue to explore the manifold topics surrounding the idea of extraterrestrial beings, the mystery of UFO encounters, the studies of paranormal occurrences, and many other perplexing enigmas that make up the world in which we live. Yes, the bizarre and peculiar world in which we live. Uh, we're very glad to have you here with us for another great discussion. In these last few episodes, uh, we've been taking a deeper look into the metaphysics of extraterrestrial beliefs, you know, into the psychological processes that lead us to comprehend the myriad of paranormal experiences that uh, humans are said to have. So for today's show, uh, Laurie is joining us from his native Canada, where he is a visiting family and will be there for the next few weeks enjoying the Newfoundland summer, which I'm not sure has even started yet for them. Um, so <laughs> hi there, Laurie. How is everything there? And has the snow melted where you are or are there still piles of it on the ground? Yeah. Hey, Joe. Uh, so the snow is indeed gone. However, it's uh, still a little chilly here. Um, I guess you can say it's warm by Newfoundland standards. The uh, temperature gets up to 70 degrees during the daytime, and that's during the summer months. But it's nothing like an Arizona summer. But uh, it's pretty nice here, actually. Um, what's hard to get used to, again, is the uh, long hours of daylight that have, you know that they have this time of year. It's uh, still light out here after nine o'clock at night and as you know back in arizona it gets completely dark by eight o'clock so that was a bit of an adjustment for me when i when i came here yeah i remember uh that from growing up in pennsylvania how in the summer months um you know and also with the daylight savings time factored in it really wouldn't be dark until almost 10 o'clock at night uh that's funny how it's like that in the northern latitudes but um and we hope you and your family are having a good time, and we hope that our connection stays strong throughout the show. I think it will. Uh, but, you know, we, you and I have certainly had our fair share of technical issues on the show uh, and running it in the past. Um, so far, so good. So far, so good, yeah. So uh, we're going to ask the questions that perhaps encroach on theology and transcendental mysticism, uh, so as to ponder the true nature and essence of the, the whole universe in which we live. And this includes an examination into the idea of evil and dark forces at work, whether it be the devil or demons or, or any entity that is said to embody all that which is unholy and unrighteous. Now, Laurie, what do you think? We've said this before, uh, that these notions that we have, particularly religious notions about God and Jesus and the afterlife, um, are extraterrestrial by definition. And that is because they entail things that are from beyond our world as well as from beyond our understanding of it. So can the same be said of things like evil spirits? And if there is evil present in the world, what does that say about consciousness? Is there a dark side to it? Well, you certainly don't have to look hard to find evidence of evil. I mean, we know that firsthand from our you know, careers in law enforcement as police officers. But it's, uh, it's apparent everywhere and, and all the time. Every religion on Earth covers its existence and it postulates its origin and source as to being some thing, some spirit or force. 
Um, the devil is probably the most universally recognized figure that em- embodies the the essence of evil, right? And we're all pretty familiar with the biblical narrative that you know, posits responsibility to him for bringing about the fall of man and introduction of sin into the created world and 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 et cetera. Uh, to the theologian, this is the uh, origin of humanity's evil tendencies. Uh, it is that story from the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve that it starts everything bad in the world. And it's actually one that is commonly believed by a lot of people, if not most people. Right. So if you recall, we went over the sort of character description and character analysis of the two central figures in the dichotomy of good and evil back a couple of years ago when we covered the mythological background of Yahweh and Lucifer and how they have developed into the archetype of God and the devil as represented in Orthodox religions, uh, Christianity as being one of them. Uh, but today we're focusing less on the allegories and the literary devices by which, uh, de- which depict good and evil, you know, God, Jesus, angels, <laughs> saints, demons. And we're going to focus more on the ontological foundation of good and evil in and of itself, or in and of themselves. In other words, we want to know what is really going on in our minds when something is understood as being good and when something is understood as being bad. We want to look at it in terms of meta-ethics instead of normative ethics, namely, what is morality as opposed to what is considered to be moral. And the pursuit of that is more difficult to achieve than we may intuitively think. Uh, On the one hand, it can be quite simple. Uh, It could be that you're trying to understand something like, um, you know, morality is is actually paradoxical if you're trying to understand it. The more closely you study it, the more obscure it seems to become. Uh, You can come up with all kinds of different examples of, you know, things that are morally uh, problematic. And likewise, the less you wonder about about it, uh, the more clearly it seems to be manifested. Yeah, I, I actually believe that's one of the tenets of tr- uh, transcendentalism and Eastern mysticism. The The harder you think about it, the less you understand it. And by not thinking very hard about it, the clearer it becomes. So the point is to don't think too hard about what's right and wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even Aristotle once said that too much philosophy can make people sick if the ultimate end is only knowledge and not action. So Yes, do or do not. Uh, there is no try, <laughs> like, like Yoda, right? <laughs> he should have done his voice, Joe. I can't do his voice. <laughs> I cannot do his voice. Even, even attempt, it would be awful. <laughs> <laughs> right, but uh, but now in our episode about immortality, we mentioned that our consciousness may continue on after our bodies die and perish away. And, and if this is so, then our conscious, whatever it is, I mean, we don't fully understand it. Um, then it is, by definition, alien, since it is something that's extra for us. So it is something that the other species of animals don't have, at least not to the extent we do. You know, our brains are quite remarkable. Um, They are unlike those of any other creature. They are exceptionally big in proportion to the rest of our bodies. You know, a lot of animals have brains that are not much bigger than walnuts and don't have nearly as many neurons within them, and they lack the prominent frontal cortex that, that we have as a very prominent feature of our brains. And our brains are actually, uh, they enable us to possess uh, not only a conscious, but a metaconscious. That is, we are not only aware of ourselves, but we are aware that we have the ability to be aware of ourselves, to wonder what it actually means to even have awareness. This means that we're able to look at our own consciousness from a vantage point from beyond 
the very framework of our minds. You know, to picture ourselves as being outside of our own minds. Uh, this is a pretty uh, amazing ability. I think of I think of how it is when we examine and question our thoughts and beliefs and, and why we even have them. This requires a degree of introspection that is analogous to how a computer can diagnose what is happening within its own circuitry. Something has to do that from outside of the circuitry. So it's circuitry working on a whole different level of operation. This is much like how our, our minds work. Right. And, and we're all able to do this, even without a whole lot of deep um, meditation. Uh, all of us are able to look at our thoughts, our, our thought processes as though you know, we are outside of ourselves looking in. Like you said, no other species that we that we know of has the mental capacity to do this, to be ultra conscious. So we have to ask, you know, where did this come from? Now, during a person's lifespan, we can say that the, the mind inside of them is operating the body it is in. And with that, it develops some form of a spiritual walk or a journey as it gathers more and more information from everything that it experiences. Um, and what does the mind do with that? Well, for one thing, it integrates into our consciousness, which forms the basis of our human essence. Now, for the most part, people in general are good and their conscious works to that end. Of course, you know, that point has always been debated. When we look at the world, most of us can find reasons to think otherwise. However, if people were not in general, you know, moral beings, things would be a lot worse. The fact that we have laws at all shows that we do possess the idea of good and righteous living even if we don't live up to that idea. Yeah, and our religions pretty much say just as much, that, you know, that we fail to reach our ideal of having perfect moral lives. But I do think that it is basically the consensus out there that people are good and, and will do what is right and what is moral in the preponderance of situations that they encounter and will do so throughout almost all of their entire lives. And we find this um, notion of deism um, in the, from the Enlightenment age of the 18th century, from a lot of writings about natural law and natural order and about the God who is, you know, the supreme uh, deity and the supreme architect of that order. Uh, Edmund Burke was one of them who said that man is a moral creature with a soul and a spirit. And then even guys like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, you know, the founders of the U.S. Constitution, uh, they strongly believe that humans are designed in accordance with the laws of the universe to be moral agents. I mean, meant to live by the will of God. All right. So the point being that humans are meant to do things for the good and not the bad. So whatever we talk about, um, or whenever we talk about this higher consciousness being like an energy field that you know uh, connects all of us, we usually comprehend it as something that is inherently good and follows a general ethic to do no harm. But can we say for certain that is always the case? And the answer is no. The collective unconscious or the superconscious or the universal soul, whatever you, you know, may want to call it, is just as capable of emanating evil thoughts into our minds as it is good thoughts. So by using the analogy of it being akin to the Internet cloud, we can illustrate how that can be so. As we all know, the World Wide Web of computer networks has brought about many detrimental things to humanity, almost just as much as, you know, has 
has brought about uh, many beneficial things. Um, and in a lot of ways, it has made our lives better, but also in some ways, it has made our lives worse. <laughs> I think all of us can see uh, computer technology as having potential for great things, but also a potential for terrible things. Yeah, absolutely. And while most people have intentions for it to be a force for good, we know that there are some who wish for it to be used for evil and immoral purposes. And we can say that the same is true with the so-called superconscious. And, and when we say that there, is, that there is sort of a level of mental phenomena, uh, when we're talking about the superconscious, that transcends the empirical world that involves all of our senses and, and compare it to the Internet or to cloud computing, what we are saying is that it is definitely a real thing and it definitely exists, even if it is not tangible. And really, the same is true with the mind, right? Uh, what is it and, and what, it, what it does um, are abstract concepts that are involving thought. Uh, nothing about it is tangible until it is actually expressed or objectively formed as a material entity, something made out of you know, matter that represents what was once an idea in the mind. Now, the Internet does exist, and while we can't touch it or see it, we can directly experience what it is doing through the manifestation in the way uh, of our computers and how they're operating. So, like, take this podcast, for instance. Uh, it is an audio recording that is stored in the cloud. Uh, we don't know where out there all the bytes and bits that make up the data and software instructions for it are actually kept. It's really not even kept in one place, right? Um, mm -hmm. But instead, it's in the cloud, which is really physically located in many, many different places uh, around the world, comprised of many different servers, many different web hubs, and many satellites and cellular towers and wireless routers, you know, everywhere. Uh, we just can't go outside and try to see it or hear it inside the internet uh, with our own eyes and ears. It doesn't work that way, even though it is essentially everywhere. Yeah, it's a good explanation. But when we download it from the internet and play it with the uh, right controls on our devices, we we can then hear it, and then it's right there. It's manifested right on our devices, and not just one device, but many devices, thousands of devices, all at the same time. So it's actually omnipresent in places everywhere, all at once, uh, at the same time. It's like a god. <laughs> The uh, the same would be true of this higher conscious or super conscious, if you will. Um, just like how the Internet isn't constrained to where our devices are located, so too is our collective unconscious um, not constrained by where our bodies are located. As long as we can make a connection, it can become manifested in our thoughts and our brains, which is, you know, a, a sort of analogous to our devices. So as we brought up before about how information can pass from a living brain to a living brain as it is possible for that one of those brains has an operating system that has evil and sinister software on it such that it can be uploaded onto another brain. Almost like how a computer can get infected from malware uh, off of another computer. And could this be what goes on with what we call demon possessions? Now, maybe it has less to do with evil spirits and more so with the epiphenomena connected through the processes of self-awareness through which our minds are connected to other minds throughout the universe. Again, a network um, of computers, a network of minds. If that's so, then maybe uh, something like an exorcism is an, a real process. 
And it's a process to remove what might be thought of as bad software, like the, the malware of the mind. It's like, oh, we can remove malware from a computer. Perhaps an exorcism is removing the malware from the mind. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Yeah, so we must ask, are demons able to control people to the point of committing crimes or acts of sin? Is there really such a thing as demon possession? You know, as police officers, we've seen our fair share of people who acted like they were possessed, but were really just strung out on drugs instead. So, I mean, it in those cases, it really was like a, a malware or like damaged hardware with the with the drugs physically, you know, shorting out the circuits, you know, the, the neurons within the gray matter of the brain. Yeah. And we also have to ask, you know, what is, you know, what is a more reasonable hypothesis about something like demon possession? You know, is it demons, you know, which are spirits and, you know, thus they're basically, you know, more like something magical uh, or is it something related to the actual processes within the mind? You know, could there be a dark side to our subconsciousness, uh, one that compels us to work against what would be our built-in ethical mechanisms? If this is so, then there is also a dark side to that superconscious or the collective uh, on, the, on the collective level, such that it infects the higher superconsciousness. When that permeates all intelligent life forms, thus it can be spread to uh, many different machines, if you will, which would be the minds. And thus can cause bad things to happen on a bigger scale. Yeah, this is sort of starting to sound a lot like the idea of the Force from Star Wars. You know, it is inherently good and behaves on a principal set of ethics, yet there is a dark side to it in which the uh, selfish desires of a person can utilize it to serve their own needs and therefore you know, be harmful to others. Exactly. And it's, it's important to uh, note the difference between what we mean by evil and what we mean by sin, you know, evil refers to things that are perceivable, um, cognitively, intellectually, and physically, and that do bring harm and wrongdoing in a way that is often quite tangible. It results in deeds which bring about pain and suffering, and it's pretty obvious, you know, when it's taking place, uh, you know, killing, hurting, stealing, cheating, etc. We all know what evil is. Sin, on the other hand, is really more of a theological construct uh, that enables or that embodies all that makes us imperfect and makes us fall short of the glory of God. It is what separates us from God by our corrupt human nature. And in the Judeo-Christian tradition, it goes back to the time of the fall of Adam and Eve. Other religions tell us similar events from the past when humans either defiled the perfect order of the universe or else disobeyed God's laws, and this brought about an upset to that order. Right, and it's at that point point that the the devil enters the world and you know wreaks uh, havoc on it resulting in suffering across the board not only from our behavior but also to our you know uh susceptibility to calamity uh diseases hunger injury 
animal attacks, natural disasters, things like that. It's it's almost like the universe turned against us, and that is when we began to experience it like a force that would you know become manifested as evil. And while good still exists, there is struggle that everyone faces in order to overcome those things that bring about evil. Yeah, and, and really that struggle is is nothing more than our survival and our adaptation in a world uh, that is often a hostile environment in which to live. Our consciousness give us that framework of morality, which entails the recognition of rules to follow so as to lessen our suffering from bad things, and it does so by striving to do good things, good things being whatever is those that help all others instead of harming them, which in turn goes around to benefit ourselves. Uh, kind of like what goes around comes around. This concept of our own self-awareness being the agency to our moral or immoral living is found in you know throughout many ancient texts. Uh, for one, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, uh, also the Hindu Vedas, the Zohar from Jewish Kabbalah. Uh, in it, they all describe what is a presence within the soul, and they re- kind of describe as a, uh, a luminous, uh, like a luminous light, like a light within the soul. And uh, it is also at times perceived as dark, on the other hand. Now, according to an article by Edward Bynum with Holistic New England, dated uh, May 26, 2015, uh, modern science is starting to recognize that there is an intelligent, conscious, and still unfolding force of evolution uh, that is within our species. And that is becoming more and more evident uh, with the research that is going on um, involving the neurosubstrates of our brains. Yeah, so uh, this idea of evil being ever pervasive in the world brings us to wonder about demon possession. Like, why is it a part of religion? That in Christianity, it is known as uh, what they call it, demonology, and is based on passages that come straight from the Bible. Now, I don't believe there are any accounts in the Old Testament about demon possession. Um, they all seem to be in the New Testament with the teachings of Jesus regarding uh, Satan and his fallen angels. Probably the one most familiar uh, is from Mark 5, 7 uh, through verse 20 and Luke 8, uh, 30 to 34, where there is a man from, uh, where was he from? Gerasenes um, <clears throat> is near. Gerasenes, yeah. Yeah, he was possessed and tormented by a whole group of demons. You probably remember that story because we've heard it so many times in church. (laughs) Jesus asked what what, uh, its name is, and it says legion because we are many. And they begged Jesus not to order them into the abyss, which refers to hell, but instead to cast them into a herd of swine. So he cast them all into the herd, and the herd all went crazy, running off a cliff into the sea, and they were all drowned. And the problem with this story is that Jesus didn't tell it. The story was told by others and unknown by who, of course, because that's how all the Gospels are written. But why wouldn't the the demons just leave and like fade off into thin hair? Um, Instead, they ask him to send them into pigs. And this makes no sense whatsoever, because when the pigs ran off the cliff and died, the demons didn't die, right? So this story was told to only show the power that Jesus had over demonic forces and was most likely exaggerated to reinforce the idea that he was the Messiah and was God incarnate. 
Well, with this account, we see that the demons have complete awareness. Um, I mean, they even recognize Jesus as the son of God as he is approaching. Uh, right. They know that they are themselves evil entities and that Jesus, being a force of goodness, uh, is more powerful than they are and are also at the mercy of his will as the son of God. And like you said, this is told to illustrate to the believer that God is holy and righteous and dominates over Satan and his minions, that being the demons. But yeah, you're right. You know, I've always kind of wondered about this uh, story uh, of the legion. <laughs> A, a demon of uh, several demons being cast out called Legion. And, you know, after the pigs died, yeah, the demons don't die. I mean, they have to go somewhere. And where do they all yeah. go? Uh, and they must have either gone into the abyss where they didn't want to go in the first place, or they just sort of wandered off, which makes you wonder why Jesus just didn't make them do that before casting them into the pigs. Did he not know that ahead of time that was going to happen? That, <laughs> uh, you know, they wanted to essentially needlessly um, slaughtered a bunch of pigs. And if they did wander off instead of going into the, the herd, then what, did they go and possess other people? Because now they're just sort of wandering around. And as they made it seem like they needed a body, any kind of body, whether it was human or animal, to be housing it. So still a lot of unanswered questions about that whole scene. Yeah, I mean, he could have easily saved a whole lot of pigs from needlessly drowning themselves. Uh, this uh, actual account could could not have happened exactly as it how it is told in the scriptures, which is what is mostly the case with all of these stories of Jesus from the Gospels, because they are all hearsay. And as it is, it is omitted from the Gospels of Matthew and John. So again, is there really even such a thing as demon possession? And likewise, exorcism, the casting out of those demons? That depends on who you ask. A religious believer would say yes, and that Satan right. is the one responsible for you know, bringing wickedness and evil into the world and that he commands a legion of demons that are, you know, powerful enough to tempt and torment people, even to the point of fully controlling their minds and bodies uh, and then doing terrible things with their minds and bodies. Now, a more agnostic person would attribute these occurrences as being more related to mental illness and, and with there being no spiritual component to it at all. You know, as far as a, a demonic possession in the Old Testament, yeah, like you said, Lori, it, it really isn't mentioned too much. Uh, I mean, there is a story in First Samuel 28, 7 through 20, uh, you know, that one where King Saul uh, goes to the witch of Endor to, to yeah. assign the ghost of Samuel, who had, had been deceased. And the ghost of Samuel ends up telling Saul that the Israelites will be defeated by the Philistines and that he will be killed by them. And, of course, Saul was very upset. <laughs> um but yeah, the, the Hebrew Bible seems to derive its language about uh, demons from the meaning of the communication with the spirits of the dead or with uh, pagan gods, which are always described as being inferior to Yahweh and thus as being evil. And we get the word demon from the Septuagint with the Greek word daimonias, uh, which actually means something along the lines of a, a mentor, uh, not necessarily anything evil, but just a mentor it could be good or bad. Uh, the theme of demonic possession seems to come at the time of Jesus uh, in the scriptural narrative. And this may be the result of influences from you know, Greek, Egyptian, and Babylonian mythologies. And of course, the Gospels show that Jesus, as the Son of God, has absolute power over those forces of evil. And of course, one of the ways uh, said to be demonstrated is his ability to drive out demons from wherever they are or in whomever they are. 
Well, in my 21 years of evangelical ministry, I have never witnessed an exorcism, which, of course, is the act of casting out a demon from a person. I attended a church service uh, one time, though. Uh, I was a teenager, but I was sitting at the very back of the church, and as the pastor was preaching, there was a commotion then around the altar area, you know, sounding like somebody moaning. Um, I, of course, everyone stands up and blocks the view, right, of everybody in the back, um, including that of yours truly here. Yeah. But anyway. Move out of the way. The, <laughs> I want to see what's going on. <laughs> yeah, everybody stands up, you know. But um, but anyway, the, the pastor starts rebuking this person and casting out this demon. And at the time, you know, this creeped me out. But I also thought that, you know, this is going to be cool. I'm about to witness a demon possession. So um, it ended up being over just as fast as it started, though. Now, there was there was nothing to it. Of course, I didn't see the possessed person, but, you know, there were friends uh, of mine that were saying that, you know, they noticed the sanctuary had a gray color atmosphere inside. And I was like, really? Like, um, I, I'm not sure to this day if this happened, but I do remember agreeing with my friends about it at the time, but I don't think it did um, actually happen because when you... Because when you are focused on something and you are, you know, sort of freaked out about it, you can start to lose your, you know, peripheral vision and things around you appear to become them, which could be, you know, the reason why my friends were saying the sanctuary was looking grayish. And of course, not everyone claimed this coloration, which means it had to be something like I explained, or else, you know, everyone would have experienced the same phenomenon, right? Yeah, and I have encountered similar uh, situations growing up with people acting out in weird ways in, in a church service and uh, and then the others in the congregation they they get you know yeah they block your view you want to see this this is like <laughs> like good stuff uh, <laughs> and then they start being you know, rebuke satan and then they get them you know back to normal and, and yeah it's it's freaky and it it's always leaves you wondering what 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 the heck was that <laughs> um yeah I don't know part of it it seems to be a group hysteria or a spontaneous emotional outbreak you know, it maybe it's attributable to to stress, anxiety, fatigue, uh, drugs. You never know what you know what's going on with those people. Yeah, uh, they might be in a church service, but you don't really know what's going on with their actual metabolism or body chemistry at that moment. It's hard to say, um, but it, it definitely seems to be caused by some sort of mental process that is a result of you know it results in abnormal behavior at that moment. Um, and there are plenty of studies on that, not only by psychiatrists but also by by the clergy. Of many different congregations, uh, Graham Davy with Psychology Today, dated December thirty first, twenty fourteen, explains that occurrences involving supposed demon possession are found to be more related to symptoms of mental illness trauma. And you know, even the Vatican has revised its its own guidelines, uh, which was under Pope Benedict, to determine if a person is said to be possessed, and or if he's just merely exhibiting uh, signs of serious mental illness, uh, you know, SMI as they call it. Without going along with that notion that these kinds of bizarre and freakish behaviors are actually associated with evil spirits, we find that it may be more accurate to say that it is uh, something like malfunctioning software, uh, perhaps like how a computer can have files that become corrupted and unworkable. And if that file is transferred from one device to another through the internet, then it too may become um, a malfunction and you have to do something about the file, like remove it and replace it. Yeah. So the idea of demon possession and exorcism has definitely been you know, brought into 
pop culture with the 1973 movie, The Exorcist. That still freaks me out, that movie. <laughs> um, but uh, many other similar ones came after it, uh, to include the most recent one called The uh, Pope's Exorcist. I haven't seen it yet, but I, I've heard a lot about it, and I've heard that it was really good. And it stars Russell Crowe as uh, Father Gabriel Amorth, who I guess in 1987 was Pope John Paul's personal exorcist. Now, um, spoiler alert here, it begins with Amorth casting a demon out and driving it into a pig. So much how you know Jesus did in the Gospels when casting out the demon named Legion into the herd of pigs that we just talked about. Anyway, he ends up having to go to um, an Italian town with uh, his apprentice, uh, Escobel, to cast out another demon, Asmodeus, which was possessing a young boy named Henry. So... Um, there is the the whole process that uh, that was carried out with prayers and uh, chants, holy relics, and in an effort to you know make the demon go away. Uh, Catholics have a process of exorcism performed only by a priest, uh, but the Protestants believe any Christian can cast out demons simply by rebuking it in the name of Jesus. So, which one actually works? I mean, both have claimed success, but the real question is. How, how does an unseen entity attach itself to a person in the first place? So it seems like it would have to do um, with the processes of the mind, you know, those that involve not only consciousness, but also memory, cognition, and ethical reasoning, as well as sensory and motor functions. The mind would be the only place for a demon to take control, which means it must somehow leech onto a person's consciousness. Um, now, there is no proof of this, of course, but it is safe to assume this is the case if, and that's a big if, demons exist and are able to complete such a task. So are there other worldly forces out there that can take control of a person's body by taking control of their mind? Well, this uh, phenomenon of evil sort of, you know, propagating throughout the conscious by way of affecting, you know, mental schemata, like we were saying, it's not limited to someone being controlled by it. It also entails someone carrying out the controlling of it. Uh, think about black magic, in which the idea is to use supernatural forces to bring about some self-serving end. Uh, there have been all kinds of spiritual and religious traditions throughout history that have syncretized the practice of bringing about an outcome, and you know, often to the demise of someone else, through the power of a person's own will that is channeled through the mind. Uh, consider hexes, uh, voodoo, curses, uh, wizardry, witchcraft, and, and shamanism, and, and how they all seem to be based on the notion that there are these psychic connections among all people, as well as with inanimate objects. Everything in existence is tied together. So are these examples of how the superconscious, that internet of all the minds of the world, as we've been talking about it, can actually be manifested as evil? So if the computer internet that we know exist, uh, that we created, can be used for malevolent purposes, then could the psychic internet, you know, the superconscious, if it exists, also be used for malevolent purposes? And as humans uh, definitely seem to exhibit these connections among one another in the way of, you know, we see as socialization, uh, emotional attachment, uh, intellectual discussion and intellectual, uh, you know, uh, Sort of, sort of a intellectualization to conversation, sharing of ideas. Uh, you can even say there is a spiritual connection among people, and how we do need to depend 
on one another for our very survival, um, you know, biologically and socially. And another thing about our species that is unique is how we are able to put ourselves both cognitively and emotionally in the position of what someone else is experiencing, whether it be good or bad. And what I mean is people, normal people, that is, possess the trait of empathy. And we can relate to how a person is feeling. And, and so we will feel sorry for them because of our conscience, uh, as opposed to our conscious, and by which we know what suffering is. And since we know that, it bothers us to do nothing to try to help that person. Right. And of course, as we all know, the problem is when people allow anger and hatred to you know, take up shop in their mind. It's like what Master Yoda said, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. <laughs> you know, that that little ugly uh, little puppet, he spoke a lot of wisdom. <laughs> well, you know, he, he wasn't a, a puppet in, in every Star Wars movie. You know, sometimes he was the CGI character. <laughs> uh, true, Joe, but uh, it is it is still good wisdom because <laughs> what he is saying is fear, fear controls you. And if you don't get a grip on it, it will lead you into anger, hatred, and then you will eventually be suffering or be in torment with yourself. So this leads you down the dark paths of life. Now, when it comes to consciousness, each person must decide what they want to do with their time in life. Now, they seek a purpose and need some kind of motivation, guidance, and direction. And so, you know, they look to find meaning in their lives through re religion or whatever. And our civilization has been instilled with law and order from the very beginning. Now, if you want to get down to brass tacks, then it is because of God that we have good and evil, because um, that's where it all started from. Um, if you believe in God, then you must accept that God gave us laws to follow, and by breaking those laws, we commit sin. Well, today in our uh, secular society, we comprehend that a person is a criminal for breaking you know, the established laws of a country. You know, however, on, on the spiritual side, a person is uh, a sinner for not being right with God. And that's because no one is right with God. We are all imperfect. And, you know, since the laws of morality are said to come from God, then being sinners, we all have the potential to violate them. And being sinners, no one is above the law, but not everyone is a criminal because not everyone has made the decision from their conscience to commit an act. Um, and that seems to be the best way to sort of rectify the, the humanistic and religious viewpoints about something like morality. Uh, sin is an abstract thing, while crime is an, a tangible thing. Correct. And evil is the agent by which crimes are committed. Sin would be considered the source from which that evil comes. To the religious thinker, sin is part of our spirit. To the scientific thinker, sin is part of our biology. Something we have to ask, something Christians must ask, is when one shark attacks and eats another shark uh, to sustain its life, does it sin? Uh, for humans, that would be cannibalism and almost universally considered to be a sin. But for the shark, it is just their nature because they're just animals. As humans, We've uh, codified certain actions as wrong, regardless of what our nature may be. And that is because we possess, you guessed it, consciousness. Like you said, Joe, sin then merely becomes a construct of the mind. You know, 
I read a book by authors, and just recently by, by authors Andrew Collins and Gregory L. Little, called Origins of the Gods, wherein they wrote about Carl Jung's theory on archetypes, uh, particularly with the one known as the trickster. Now, Jung believed that a trickster was a mythological creature and was an archetypical or, or an archetypal symbol um, found in all cultures. Uh, it was a force used to disrupt nature and therefore a reason to explain the chaos that followed. In other words, it was something to place blame on, and it appeared in either animal or human form throughout history and culture. And the examples that Jung used were things like fairies, angels, demons, serpents, uh, even disc-shaped objects, circular patterns, and triangular patterns. The archetypes um, means the original to which others are copies of. So as Collins and Little put it, archetypes typically come in polar opposites, male, female, uh, wise man, fool, light, dark, God, Satan, angel, demon, trickster, helper. Um, they went on to say that Jung believed that archetypes always uh, of a, were always of a spiritual nature and that at times they appear in physical uh, objective reality. Now, to quote Jung himself, he said, "The archetype, as um, such, uh, as such, is a a psychoid factor that belongs, as it were, to the invisible, ultraviolet end of the psychic spectrum." Now, psychoid means a process that is able to bridge the gap between psychological reality and objective reality. Archetypes, as pure nature are pure energy, remaining primarily invisible, but occasionally occasionally manifest themselves. That's really interesting. Yeah, Carl Jung, you know, our, our favorite analytical psychologist, uh, mm -hmm. he, loves, <laughs> yeah, he loves symbols. And in two of his works, one titled uh, The Undiscovered Self and the other uh, Man and His Symbols, he elaborates on how the form of archetypes actually impregnate our unconsciousness or, or subconsciousness, as it's often called, in the way that we have dreams and experience a reality in those dreams that is segregated from our senses. And when you think about it, a, a dream is like a paranormal occurrence in and of itself. You know, while we are sleeping, we are in an altered state of uh, awareness. Uh, we see and hear things that are not actually going on in our physical world, but instead are happening to us within our minds on a very recessed level. And he was also fascinated with the tales of the trickster from the Native American lore and their association with the supernatural. And Jung believed that all mythical figures correspond to inner psychic experiences. And he believed that the subterfuge of the trickster uh, is often by taking an altered form of appearances, like a shapeshifter, um, shapeshifter rather. Uh, and that had a central role in the manifestation, manifestation of things um, that are told about, you know, like clairvoyance and also uh, you know, dreams and you know, visions of spirits. And also, according to uh, Collins and Little, Young believed that communing with tricksters was the primary activity underlying the practice of shamanism. And that he also asserted that under some circumstances, the archetypes travel between the unseen ends of the electromagnetic energy spectrum to the visible light frequencies, where they appear to reveal themselves in the physical. Now, this is known as transmutation. 
Now, they also wrote about uh, a, a paranormalist, John Keel. Now, he was the one who investigated the Mothman prophecies of Point Pleasant in West Virginia, who, and, who is said to have explained that the, the Mothman was of an, an intelligence known as ultra-terrestrial, which means that it was from some other part of our normal spectrum of senses and reality. So Keel believed that we have biological antennas that exist in the natural world, but travel in the electromagnetic energy spectrum. He likened it to uh, what you mentioned in an episode or two ago, Joe, about us you know, being like radios tuned to pick up certain signals from this electromagnetic spectrum. So therefore, ultra-terrestrials are the intelligent entities outside the visible light spectrum sending the messages to humans. So we either pick up the signals or we don't. Yeah, it could be that uh, it is our ability to tune into that energy field of electromagnetism that essentially defines us as, as human and as being apart from other animal species. And, and perhaps with the theory that we are uh, hybridized from extraterrestrial ancestors, you know, and perhaps that comes with the belief that the, the special characteristics of universal unconsciousness and morality are what we acquire from our so-called creation. Um, it could be that that level of awareness is what is meant by living or, or what is meant by being like unto God. Uh, so for next episode, we're going to look at the idea of higher consciousness, not only as being unrestrained by the dimensions of space, but also how it transcends the limitations of time, namely linear time as we all know it. Yeah, the topic will be about portals, wormholes and stargates which uh, are described as being anomalies within the fabric of the universe, such that the normal laws of physics seem to become altered. And the hypothesis behind them is that if they do exist or do occur, then something like time travel is possible. Right. And not only that, um, but instantaneous travel from one point to another, even if the distance between the two are thousands of miles or, or even if they are light years apart. Uh, could it be that these kinds of rifts within the space-time continuum are the ones that exist as part of the higher universal consciousness that gives some people the ability to see into the future? And could it be that these people are the ones that throughout history have been the, called prophets and seers? Yeah, you never know. If information from the so-called superconscious can be sent from different points through space, can it also be sent from different points through time? Um, that should be a very uh, good discussion as we uh, continue with the the, uh, the metaphysical side of the extraterrestrial encounters. So we want to remind everyone that if you're listening to us via Spotify, you can uh, reply to uh, a question just below our um, episode's description where you can let us know what you think of the show. Uh, you can also go to patreon.com and show your support there for the podcast. And we'd love to hear from you from you guys uh, about your thoughts and 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 what we've discussed and uh, we want we, we want to answer those or try to answer those questions that you may have yeah and, and also don't forget you can message us uh, those questions through our Facebook page and on our website uh, at www.aliantalkpodcast.com so thank you all for joining us today and we look forward to being with you guys again in two weeks as always remember good thoughts good words good deeds and stay curious. Yeah, especially after what we talked about today. <laughs> uh, very important to have uh, good thoughts, words, and deeds, right? Right. So, yeah. So take care, everyone, and thanks for tuning in.